The Guardian. As the global pandemic drags on into the winter, it's clear that COVID-19, in addition to being a direct threat to our physical health, is having an impact on our mental well-being too. Worrying about getting the virus or unknowingly transmitting it, even with a vaccine, is a stressful experience in itself, let alone the associated pressures of isolation or financial worries about the impact on the economy. So what exactly are the consequences of the stress as we continue to live through this global pandemic? Straight away, we were seeing that in the early phase of the pandemic, the impact on mental health was very, very profound. The levels of stress, anxiety and depression that people were reporting were unprecedented. You know, those levels far exceed the levels that you would normally see. Kavita Vatera is a professor of health psychology at the University of Nottingham, who since the start of the first government lockdown has been conducting a study that investigates the mental health effects of the pandemic. As we look ahead towards a potentially post-pandemic world, some point in 2021, what do the initial findings from this research reveal about the lasting impact of COVID-19 on our mental health? I'm Natalie Grover, a science correspondent with The Guardian, and this is Science Weekly. Hi, Professor Vadera. Hi, hello. Thanks so much for talking to us today. To begin with, can you tell us exactly what you mean by health psychology? What is it? What does it look at? And how is the research generally uh, carried out? Fundamentally, what it's interested in doing is taking what we know about psychology and applying it to all areas of health and well-being. The idea being that if we understand the psychology of the person facing the health threat, we may be in a position to improve their health outcomes. So um, it's everything from supporting individual patients with adherence to medication, for example, through to informing policy in public health. It must be a busy time to be a health psychologist then. I certainly feel like I'm busier than I have ever been, but it's difficult to know if that's just because of COVID or because academics across the world are juggling with this new way of working, which essentially has, if not doubled, tripled our workload. And of course, the questions that are being posed by the pandemic are really important and they're really urgent. So all of us are working very long days in order to try and make our very small contributions to the evidence to hopefully, you know, get to the end of this sooner rather than later. Talk to me about, you know, what you think are the major risk factors that make us more uh, susceptible to mental health problems. Sure. So mental health, as I'm sure you appreciate, covers a huge and diverse range of conditions just in the way that physical health does. And there are some very well uh, delineated models about how we think about stress and the risk factors for it. It starts off with really understanding that stress isn't just a single component. It's actually a process that involves lots of interactions between different things. At the start of the process, you have a stressor. So this can be any event in our environment. It can be something that's happened in the past, something that's going to happen in the future or something that we're living with right now. So obviously in the case of the pandemic, it's the pandemic itself and the risk of COVID. And that is, if you like, an event which has the capacity to result 
in psychological stress, but of itself won't necessarily result in stress for everyone. And the reason for that is that there are a host of factors that will influence how we respond to that challenge. So what we know from work in the area of stress more generally and in terms of um, kind of chronic long-term stresses, which I think this pandemic can easily be described as, is that there are a couple of things that make a difference in terms of vulnerability. First is how you appraise the challenge that you're facing. So all of us subconsciously will be making assessments all the time about how threatening that event is to us. And then the second bit is for us to say, well, what can I do about it? What resources do I have available to me to contend with this? Now, some of those resources will be psychological. Mm. They will be about, you know, how you generally cope. Some of them will be more social. So thinking about access to support and there'll there'll be sort of socioeconomic considerations as well. You know, how much money do you have to throw at a particular problem? Um, And so you can start to see how it's a real panoply of factors that will influence how vulnerable you are to stress. And once those factors determine how you respond to the challenge, the stressor, at the other end of this stress process that I'm describing to you, you have what we call the stress response. And that's the actual tangible feeling of stress that you and I might experience as a result of going through this process. And of course, this is a process that we're literally going through uh, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, as we deal with the myriad of challenges that this pandemic is, is throwing up for us. What does stress do potentially to our physical well-being? You've asked the question that is very, very close to my heart. And in fact, um, most of the research I do is very much concerned with how these emotional experiences like stress result in physical changes in our body and what implications that has for our health and well-being. So we know that when we experience negative moods like stress, that there are real physiological changes that happen. They happen in two main pathways in the body, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the slower system to respond, and the more immediate system, which is known as the sympathetic adrenal response. So with the quicker response, the more immediate response, you're seeing changes in blood pressure and heart rate. And in the slower response, you're seeing changes in hormones, specifically the hormone cortisol, which is the one of of particular interest. What's happening is that if you're experiencing a stressor that is short-lived, those changes, they happen, but they resolve really quickly. But when the stress becomes more protracted or chronic in nature, that's when we see real implications for physical health. Because what you're seeing then is that those biological changes that I've just described to you, they persist over time. And then they start to change other systems in the body. And one of the key areas of interest is in the hormone cortisol, because what we know is that when that hormone becomes dysregulated, it has consequences for the functioning of the immune system because nearly all cells of the immune system bear receptors for the hormone cortisol. The hormone's role is to switch the immune system on and off. That's what it does. So that if you're in a situation of threat, you need the immune system to either be switched on or off depending upon the threat. But 
if that hormone is dysregulated, it starts to interfere with that signaling. And so your immune system starts to behave in a haphazard way. What that means for health is a variety of things. And what will happen very much depends upon the health threat that you're facing. Let's talk about this study you conducted. You investigated the mental health effects of the first six weeks of the national lockdown, the original national lockdown. Uh, Tell us about that study, what you were looking at and uh, what you found. I think we realised quite quickly that uh, this pandemic was very likely to have significant consequences for mental health. And of course, given my own interest in how mental health influences physical health, we wanted to look at that also. So what we did was establish quite rapidly in the in the space of just a few weeks, a cohort of individuals across the UK. We recruited 3,097 people over three weeks, all of whom completed surveys which we have planned that they did them in that first phase of lockdown. We've repeated those surveys again as things opened up in the summer and we're right in the process of uh, completing the third wave. And our aims of the work really were, um, firstly, we just simply wanted to kind of look at the prevalence of mental health difficulties throughout the pandemic. We want to really understand whether certain groups of individuals are more vulnerable to these mental health difficulties and others. So in other words, who might we want to think about targeting for intervention? Mm -hmm. We also wanted to understand what sort of psychological and social characteristics were associated with a greater risk of mental health problems. And finally, um, alongside our survey, we asked participants to take a very small sample of hair at the first two time points so that we could measure the stress hormone cortisol that I've been mentioning to you. Because if we see evidence that cortisol levels change, then actually it Um, gives greater credence to the idea that maybe mental health might influence people's vulnerability to COVID as well. So essentially, that was the, the design of the study. And so far, what have you found in terms of the biggest impact on people during this time? As you can imagine, it's kind of um, we're, we're doing this at warp speed. Uh, so we've done the most um, analysis on the first data that we collected during lockdown. And what we saw in that very first phase was that the levels of stress, anxiety and depression that people were reporting were unprecedented. Mm. So we had over 64% of people reporting symptoms of depression and nearly 60% of people reporting symptoms of anxiety. And what we did was we compared that with prior to the pandemic. And we see that, you know, those levels far exceed the levels that you would normally see. So the impact on mental health was very, very profound. Um, For the purposes of this interview, we've had a very quick look. Uh, So this is not published data, Mm -hmm. but it's just to give you a little taste of what we're seeing. I've just looked this morning at what the data looked like um, comparing lockdown with opening up with where we are now. And bearing in mind, we're just getting those surveys in at the moment. Mm -hmm. And essentially, we're seeing evidence of a bit of a a V-shaped relationship. So The first lockdown was associated with um, the highest levels of psychological morbidity or mental health difficulties. We see 
a little bit of improvement in that. Not huge, I would say, but there is some improvement that was evident as we opened up in the summer, but those levels seem to be going back up. The other things that we saw from the first wave of the study was that in terms of the psychological influences on how well people were responding emotionally, in general, what we found was that the most important things were how lonely people felt, how much they were worried about getting COVID, and of course, their experience of positive mood. So positive mood appeared to be protective. So if you were able to experience some degree of positivity amongst the madness, that appeared to protect you. So some very um, interesting findings, even from just that first phase of lockdown. So you mentioned the V-shaped curve. And the way that the lockdown was sort of imposed versus the second lockdown, there are some differences. Um, I know you're still in the process of analyzing the data, but I just wonder whether those differences are sort of being reflected in, in the data. A number of things have changed about this second lockdown. At one level, you know, this is a much more familiar experience to us. And one of, if you think about the characteristics of things that we find stressful, they're usually situations that we find novel, uncontrollable and unpredictable. So certainly the novelty element has fallen away a little bit. But on the negative side, I think what's happened between March and now is that people have um, lost a lot of faith and trust in the way the pandemic has been managed. The rules have become more complex and harder to understand, and, and they, they certainly don't seem to make sense. I mean, there was a elegant simplicity to the lockdown in the first instance, which simply and very clearly said, we all need to stay indoors no matter what. But the tiering, to me, may well um, amplify mental health problems in ways that we hadn't anticipated. So I think some of the drive has been because there is a concern about mental health, but one of the unintended consequences could be that tiering actually makes things worse. Something interesting that you brought up earlier, you know, the actual impact of COVID itself and the general impact of the pandemic. How difficult is it to sort of tease out what's going on? Because obviously some of it is the pandemic and potentially some of it is being infected with the, with the disease. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is quite difficult to tease those things out because they are correlated. So every one of us is obviously living with the pandemic. Um, so that is a challenge that is uniform. But hopefully the numbers of us who actually get diagnosed COVID infection or indeed believe that we've had COVID infection will be a smaller circle of people. So one way to look at that, of course, is to do analyses where you compare people. Everyone's in the pandemic, so we're all in the same cohort, but we compare the experiences or the outcomes for people who absolutely definitely had COVID versus people who didn't. Um, so that's one of the kind of methodological ways we would approach answering that question. I suspect because the effects of the pandemic on mental health are so far reaching and so profound that, in fact, it will almost be irrelevant what's been the cause of people's mental health difficulties. I think for most people, the pandemic is about a range of challenges. None of us are experiencing just one. And so I'm just wondering, given what you've seen in your study, how long term are these problems likely to be? I think a lot of that will be determined by how long the pandemic in its current form 
goes on for, because essentially anything like this, which is constantly evolving and challenging our well-being, is over time just uh, we're experiencing wear and tear in terms of our emotional health. And the longer that wear and tear goes on, the harder it will be for people to bounce back from it. So we've had encouraging news recently on the vaccine front. How important is this from a mental health perspective? How important is that idea of hope? I think hope is incredibly important, but hope without certainty is probably not so helpful. It's more like wishful thinking. I think what we've had at just the right time is a real boost in our hope that there could be an end to this. If you think about where we started off, it was from the point that nobody had ever developed a vaccine against a coronavirus previously. So there were many people, myself included, that actually were just not hopeful that it was ever going to be achieved. So the fact that three have emerged is just phenomenal. However, for it to translate into an exit strategy, there are still many, many steps. So at the moment, I think it should be cautious hope as opposed to uh, us all suddenly deciding, okay, well, we can return to normal because we'll be getting vaccinated in the first quarter of next year. So cautious optimism. Cautious optimism, yes. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. It was great speaking to you. You're very welcome. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week for more episodes exploring the COVID-19 pandemic and the best of the Guardian Science reporting. Until then, look after yourselves. Goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.